What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Come with me if you want to live. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. The Force will be with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly, and today I am taking a trip back in time, as always, and we're going to be visiting a certain film studio, possibly one of the most beloved yet not recognised uh, movie studios of the 1980s. And to do that, I'm being joined by uh, Austin, Austin Trunick. If I pronounced that wrong, I apologise. But Austin, you have dedicated some time to this studio we're going to talk about them in a minute to the extent that you're writing a full three volume series about canon films and i cannot tell you how awesome that is so thank you <laughs> uh, but first and foremost tell us about yourself uh, austin you know where you're from and, and how you got into writing this book well i i'm originally from ohio which is in the middle of the united states really you, you see it a lot in movies when they kind of need a just general to, you know, smack anybody in the middle of, um, but yeah, so my, my background sort of kind of the, you know, the farms, the cows mm -hmm, being mm -hmm. around. Um, we didn't have a movie theater nearby, but we had video stores and you could rent videos from not just the, you know, your general place where it's just videos, but the gas stations had mm -hmm. video rentals, the grocery store had video rentals, really anywhere for a while you could almost take home a movie with you for the night. And yeah, that's where I fell in love with movies. And of course, back then, that was when Canon ruled the world. It was really, they, 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 I heard, I've heard, overheard someone recently say that uh, the video store was the great equalizer because mm -hmm. you walked in, you would see the box cover. And no matter how bad your movie was, your box cover could be as good as anyone else's in the shop. So yeah, I wound up seeing a lot of Canon movies in those days. But years later, I wound up going to school uh, to write about film, film studies. and. I wound up writing for magazines for, um, you know, more than a decade at this point. But I wanted a project I could work on myself and thinking back to where I fell in love with movies and where my mind always comes back to. It was, Canon was a studio that mm. always was right on the top. And that's where that began. So about six years ago, I started working on, on what became these books. Excellent. So, yeah, so... That was your, your, your sort of, you know, your in, I suppose. But what's your first sort of memories then of canon films as a kid? What are the films that sort of, you know, before you started this project, was there any films that sort of stood out? And, and you know, there's mom and pops sort of mm. video rentals. What were your first sort of memories then of canon films? Well, here in the, I, I, I know at least in this, my memory is, of course, the, the US covers of a lot of these and the ways they were packaged. And the MGM tapes, which covered really the first five or six years of canon releases, were larger than any of the others on the shelf. They were about six by nine. Mm. Uh, so much bigger than a VHS tape. And they would have these painted artwork that was really eye-catching. So Invasion USA, I have the shirt. That's yeah. one that I remember very vividly seeing on the shelves. Um, the ninjas, uh, the ninja movies, the Shokasugi ones, like Revenge of the Ninja, um, Ninja 3, The Domination, American Ninja. These are all movies that especially as a kid, because 
and the store that I went to the most, the martial arts was a section of the action, but it was the section that was closest to the floor. So <laughs> that was right at, yeah. right at my eye level. And then later on, I remember seeing the Master Universe with the great Drew Struzan, Dolph Lundgren, mm. uh, Skeletor painted artwork and begging my parents like, let's take this home. This is, this isn't, because before that, a lot of the canon movies I would see is, you know, my, my sister and I would get each get to rent something from the kids section on a Friday night. My dad would rent something for him and my mom to watch after we'd gone to bed. And then there was always something my dad would rent that was like, mm, you know, a Chuck Norris movie. <laughs> and that would be something that because it was the 80s, I would get to watch with him when I was a kid. And so that was that was fun. Um, but those are those are the movies that stick out to me. It's the canon action movies. Um, yeah in particular well those do seem to be the ones that sort of have the the strongest legacy i think and i, I love the fact you, you you know you mentioned there sort of the the, the covers um and the painted artwork and i, I honestly think it's a lost art mm. um, you know the, the, like you mentioned drew strews in there but like just some of the covers you used to get on vhs tapes like and not, not just kind of but across the board, like, you know, some of the stuff they were like, oh, you can't watch this film, but you can look at this sort of horror-stricken or, like, you know, action-laden cover. And I was like, I want that. I want that. Why can't I watch that? That's amazing. So, yeah, those, the cover art on things used to be, uh, like you say, you've got the um, you know, Invasion USA sort of T-shirt on the, you know, the, mm -hmm. the big Chuck Norris sort of stood there. And, <laughs> you know, I, I remember all those. And I think that's that's when I think of canon again, it's those sort of like the ludicrous sort of uh, titles and, and um, then the, uh, the covers. I mean, I always remember Missing in Action is a cover. Of like, you know, I've only seen the film a couple of times, but I can never forget that cover. Like, you know, that right. cover. So it's amazing how they stand out to as, as a kid. Um, but yeah, really then, to, as you dug into this, then, you started this six years ago. I mean, was the intention to do one book? What, what, what made it become three books? Uh, you know three volumes it snowballed quickly um <laughs> my original intention was to write one book it was going to be 50 canon movies and it would be mm. one that would just cover i would sort of pick and choose my favorites but then i think a lot of people when they get into the canon catalog they realize it's much 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 larger than mm. they ever expected and that's what i experienced right right on i i knew but i knew that chuck norris i knew the michael dudikoff the charles bronson movies but there's so many that are, you know, musicals, erotic dramas, period pieces, war films that don't star Chuck Norris. And you can just keep digging and digging and finding more and more. And some of those were just as interesting as the ones that I was excited to learn a lot about. And some of them have even crazier, wilder histories. And so, yeah, it grew from there. It, it went from this one that was just going to be a 50 movies. And then I found out I'd written about more than that. And then... At some point, it's just like, I've got to cover really as many as I as I can. So it I mapped out the three books um, mm. that should be about certain lengths each and cover certain periods of time. The first one covers 80 to 84. The second one covers 85 to 87, which is a very short period of years, but is when they made the most movies. It was their most prolific time. And the last one will cover 88 through their end in the early 90s, mm. which is they're really the direct to video period where they're putting out a lot of stuff, but it's very low budget and not as <laughs> not nearly as fun to get through. At least that's my opinion. Is um, it no, I, I, is it, those periods you talk about are interesting. I mean, you know, um, 
for me, I remember there's, there's films from each of those periods, but but you mentioned like Master of the Universe, that was like 89, I think, 88, 87. 87, okay, so you got yeah. that. So, and I know that was like a big, they, they, you know, they, all, they were all in on that. That was a big, uh, right. you know, uh, piece for them. Um, but I also remember coming later, I believe it's kind of, is, is the, the Punisher, uh, you know, Dolph Lundgren sort of. Oh, that wasn't theirs though. Oh, was it not? No. <laughs> No, but they they did um they had the rights to Spider Man and Captain America, and they also produced Superman Four. But the yes. Spider Man and Captain America they didn't they didn't end up having the money to do anything with, unfortunately. No, I remember that sort of. I did a, 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 there was a Marvel thing I did a long time ago. And they were talking about who owned the rights to everything, and and mm -hmm. you know following the seventies um, debacles. Um, but yeah, the, 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 it's a real tumultuous time. But I, I love the fact as well that Canon were an underdog. Um, you know, especially during the eighties. Um, but it, it seems to me, and it, you, it sort of gets called out very early on in, in sort of you know, uh, parts of your book, is that they were almost like almost ahead of the curve in, in yeah. some ways. And you know, they were they were blazing a trail. And what what you know is that the do you feel that's the case? And you know, how were they doing that? In in some cases, I, I yeah, they're definitely ahead of things they well, this, this is just one example that it is my own theory mm -hmm. but you look at something like their death wish sequels where it's poor charles bronson as paul kersey who has to go on this vengeance quest because somebody in his family or friends or like close circle <laughs> is killed and they're just each one is taking finding whatever excuse they can just to sort of repeat the events of the ones before even to the point where it's the same his his poor daughter gets attacked in the first and second one and be, because that happened and because that you can have this sort of carbon copy sequel i think we and you look at a, a series like taken which mm. now can sort of do that same thing and i think i think if there hadn't been the death wish sequels what canon had done with them before that i think somebody would have been like mm, this is too ridiculous we can't keep putting this poor old man in this situation but there was a precedent for it because of because of those. But one of this, Canada did some things very, very well um, during their time. They did a lot of things very poorly, which uh, can be seen in the films themselves and mm. their short, relatively short uh, history that they had before they collapsed. But one of the things that they did incredibly well was selling international rights to their films, uh, exploiting video markets. They were one of the first companies to really embrace, to milk all the money they could from every, you know, they, they, did, they wouldn't send a movie into production if they hadn't sold the tape rights everywhere they could. Mm. If it didn't have cable rights, if it wasn't already lined up for the movie channel or HBO or somewhere before it was even shot. And that was their strategy. They would go to uh, sales, places where they could sell things like film festivals and markets with a big book, a big catalog full of posters and little pieces of art, which most of them were complete crap. There was nothing behind them, you know, other than like a, a sketch piece of artwork, maybe, maybe not a piece of talent attached and a fun tagline. And once they had sold it enough people, enough people signed up that they would buy that piece of product, they would take it to, they would take that money home and they would really, they would shoot the film. And so if they, if, if they had a Chuck Norris movie, say they sold $10 million worth of 
rights by selling it to Germany, you know, Japan, Italy, the United States, all the cable markets in the United States, several VHS distributors around the world. They had $10 million and they shot the movie for $5 million mm-hmm. and it made $1 million at the box office. Everyone looks at that and, oh, what a huge flop that is. But it wasn't. That's a $6 million <laughs> profit for them yeah. and they can turn around and make two more movies like that. And that, that's an interesting thing as well because now, you know, when you look at films of all sizes, you know, we obviously have massive blockbusters. And when people look at the success of a film, they no longer look at and go, oh, this is what the American market did. It's like, okay, this is what the American market did, but let's look at the international market now. So, mm-hmm. you know, th- that's now taken into consideration. I mean, you know, everyone's like, okay, China is the biggest market or the second biggest market. So we're going to fill that. Then there's Europe and, and you know, mm-hmm. uh, other places. And it, that really wasn't the case in, in the 80s. And I think just to, to recognize that, you know, they were, it was Gold, was it Golden or Globus? So, you know, the, the two of them was. Yeah, Globus was the salesman. He was mm. the, the business guy that I really has, has to have a lot of credit for that. And they weren't the only studio did, that did that, but they were the studio who I think made it most of their, their entire business model and really yeah. thrived on that. Yeah, Globus was, there were two cousins, Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus. Menachem Golan was the older, about a decade older than his younger cousin, and he was the creative guy. He was the one who would be spitballing these hundreds of ideas that, you know, most of them were ridiculous, would never happen. But he would also be the one who would go and have a lunch meeting with somebody, and you could take any idea in Hollywood, and if it was something everyone else rejected, I've heard stories you could take that same idea to Menachem Golan and if he liked it and if he thought you could do it in X weeks for less than the, for, for basically half of what you wanted to make the movie, <laughs> he would send it right into production. He would sign you a deal on a napkin right there and it usually took no more than 30 minutes for him to green light something, which is amazing because Canon that wound up, Canon did take chances that other studios wouldn't. Do you have a lot of projects that were bounced around for years or decade or more? And finally, Canon took the shot. There's great movies. Runaway Train's a great example that mm. that movie began with Akira Kurosawa trying to make it in the early 60s. And you know, it took 20 years and many different studios and different people attached before Canon, Canon made it. Yeah. I, I love this idea though, the sort of like the zany sort of, you know, this atmosphere, cause um, you know, and, and they were, they were treading in the sort of the, the, the footsteps. I mean, you know, nothing's brand brand new, but this, it feels like they were treading, treading in the footsteps of like AIP, uh, American mm-hmm. International Pictures and, and Roger Corman. And I know mm-hmm. that Roger Corman obviously gave, uh, Maham Golan, uh, his first sort of entry into Hollywood. And it sort of, it feels like they're carrying on that legacy of, yeah, I can do it under budget and for fifteen in fifteen days, and then we'll get in it and we'll get it out, and I'll do ten films this year. And it's sort of, it's, I, I love that the the, the, yeah. the level of just sort of uh, energy and creativity they seem to just want to plow through this stuff. Um, but also, like I say just the fact they did take chances. Um, and I've heard, obviously, that you know, uh, quite. I don't know how famous it is, but there's anecdotes of them like being given scripts, and it was like you know, they had like the the Charles bucket. Is it going to go to Charles Bronson, or is it going to go to Charles? You know, which which Chuck is it going to go to? Um, but yeah, so you know, th- this idea of sort of do do you think you know they had an influence on the bigger studios? 
Um, was, it, was there a sort of like a, you know, um, this thing of like, that others are going, well, you know, they did it for low budget. We could do it for more money and probably, you know, and, and sort of, do, do you think they had an influence up is what I'm thinking? Um, t- to a small degree, yes, I would say so. They, especially once their movies were a success, once they were getting big, bigger name stars, especially in the mid 80s, who were, and directors, you have, you have very famous directors who were then mm. signing on to do films with them. When they first came and they bought Canon in the early 80s, people wanted to write them off as a joke because they were releasing ninja movies and these very cheap erotic dramas. And But then in the mid 80s, you had in 84, you had Missing in Action and Breakin', which were these huge hits. And then you have guys like even Stallone, who was the biggest star in the world at that time, signing on to do Over the Top with them. Mm. And yeah, at that point, the studios started looking like, we gotta, we have to take these guys seriously. They're, <laughs> they're, they're not these little joke anymore. No, and that's, the, uh, you know, you mentioned if they still own and doing over the top, which, um, you know, Stallone has a, is a, a mixed bag, but like, you know, he, some of his, some of these, even over the top, it's got good fun in it. I think one of the things you say in your introduction is how like, you know, they may not all be top flight quality, but you can't complain that they're not fun. Like, you know, there's something about these films. Was Cobra a canon film? Cobra's got a very interesting case and there, there are so many, movies that have the canon logo on them at mm-hmm. different points they distributed them canon uh, cobra has a very unique case that's fun canon had in 84 which is two years before over the top was was shot they had gone to stallone and made this basically this deal and they announced it to all the papers 12 million dollars he was going to be the highest paid actor for a single movie ever and that was in the cover of every trade magazine mm. it, it was a huge deal and you know it took a lot of negotiating for them to get Stallone to sign on to over the top the problem was that they didn't have 12 million dollars to give him that's not the kind of money that cash that canon most of their stuff was done on credit at that point because they had they could go to the banks and say look we sold this to Greece we've sold this to mm. Italy we sold this to all these places can you give us the money to make it they don't they didn't have that money in the bank so they gave Stallone 500 grand as a retainer and they went out to every studio they could every studio every partner saying we need 12 million dollars for Stallone we need another 12 million actually to shoot this movie to do everything else and most companies were looking and saying, oh, this isn't really a, uh, I don't know if we're going to make back our investment on this. The, you know, Because at that point, even Canon knew that they had to sell, they had to sell the farm to even mm-hmm. get over the top made. And finally, after years and years, that's why over the top went from, they announced it in 84 and they didn't, they didn't shoot it for two years, is Warner Brothers finally stepped in and Warner Brothers wanted to make Cobra, they had the script. It was originally uh, the Beverly Hills Ninjas, yes. or, or Beverly, Beverly, sorry, Hills Beverly, Beverly Hills Cop script mm. that Stallone had rewrote to remove all the humor when he dropped yeah. off that project. And they wanted to make that, but of course Stallone was under a exclusive contract with Canon. So Canon, as part of their deal, they let him out of the exclusive to go to, um, go make this movie with Warner Brothers, make Cobra. 
and but part of what the part of what they negotiated so that they could save a little face and it wouldn't look silly that their exclusive was not exclusive at all they got the executive producer credits right. which that's why you have a golden globus and canon on there but really all they had was you know crossing out some paperwork and re-signing some stuff and that's 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 but you know it, it's very much a canon movie in spirit <laughs> oh yeah you know, i love cobra i, I think it's fantastic yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's a lot of fun it was it's one of those ones that i i i, I wish i wish golden globus had had uh, had an influence in it because it would have been even crazier somehow <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure, yeah, and it's a film with a fantastic history, as I say, you know, being linked to Beverly Hills Cop and that sort of thing, but it goes to show like, what you, the story you just heard there, that I always thought it was a canon film, so this is the influence of, like, canon is, is a staple for me as part of the 80s, and, um, you know, just to, to, to sort of, uh, yeah, they, they clearly had that um, savvy to be involved in it, you know, like, all right, we're not, you know, we, may, we don't want to lose face, but we're still going to be all over this to the extent that yeah. Warner Brothers become secondary. They may have made it and paid Stallone and stuff, but they become secondary to the fact that it's a canon film. Right. Um, and I, you know, I do think that's uh, you know fair play to them. Really, I think you know the, the, the more I learn, I've just been I've been reading different pieces on you in, in your book and doing bits of research. It's like the more I'm like, yeah, these guys like I really wish they'd have succeeded more. You know, yeah. they sort of it's almost like they deserved it. Um, but going into that, in your research, you obviously interviewed people and spoke to. What was the most surprising? Well, funny. What, what was the most fun part of the research for you? Like, you know, when you go around and talk to people, like, what was the? What, was there anything that really sort of you were like, this is bonkers, or you know, didn't think I'd get to speak to this person or whatever? Yeah. Well, there. My favorite part is talking to the people who worked on these films mm. easily because they have so many stories and they're there's always even if there's a production where I'm coming in with an idea of like oh I know these things went wrong I know all this happened there's always more things that you haven't heard that I hadn't heard about yet which mm. these are some great details and I'm amazed by the people I've gotten to talk to it's been it's been a lot of fun um and surprising some of the people who've said yes so, yeah. <laughs> but yeah that's 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 the best part another thing I love that unfortunately you won't get to see until a third book is the the unmade canon projects things that were announced mm. the things that are in these catalog pages where it'll be you know michael dudikoff in a top gun ripoff or you have uh charles Char you know charles bronson fighting a shape-shifting golem in new york city who it's it just some crazy films and i've that, loved sorry. Is that synopsis real you've just mentioned there about yeah oh, i've yeah. heard that i heard recently i was uh, i can't remember where i was listening i where i read about that that rings a real bell is something about these unmade films and, and, and this thing about charles uh, uh, they said elderly but the guy just looked chiseled for decades um but yeah an, el an elderly charles bronson fighting a monster in new york and i was like I don't recognize that. And it was an unmade movie. So, wow, okay, well, yeah. that was a go. That was a canon, uh, potential canon project. That was very real. They were trying to make that in 1987. They were pushing it around. And of course, that was like really when things were falling apart for them. Mm. But they had gotten to the point where they had demoed the effects and it was going to be using stop motion animations or claymation wow. to have this monster be able to come up through pipes and to 
because it was supposed to be Charles Bronson was going to be this homicide detective trying mm. to solve all these murders that were being done by this giant clay monster coming out of people's pipes and killing them and slinking in the sewers and things like that. But the special effects were too costly. So it was one of those things where they took it around and not enough people signed up for it. So mm. <laughs> they decided not to send it into production. But um, the, yeah, those are the fun things because I can ask people about those. So yeah, that, that's yeah. fascinating. Oh, no, that's great. I mean, that, I, I'm looking forward to that to find out the un, unmade projects. That's, that, that'd be really interesting. Were there any surprises though? You know, you were, and that was the, the fun bit. Was like, but was it was at any point where you were like, "Wow, I didn't know that," or there's a, there was a connection or a story that came through, and you were like, "Oh, wow, that's you know, that's really <laughs> blown my mind." <laughs> almost, almost every time I've spoken to somebody or spent <laughs> a good day reading and research, there's yes. There are a lot of cases like that. There are cases of just casting where, of course, Canon would take an idea and they would go to the uh, markets one year and it would star Robert Ginty and not enough people would sign up for it. Then the next year they would take the exact same project with his name removed and Christopher Walken put on there. <laughs> and it wouldn't sell because they had to reload like that's when they had a higher budget walking costs a little more money and then two years later they'd make it and it'd be with michael dudikoff and it would be a much lower budget because he was on contract <laughs> and um but yeah some of the, some of that stuff is there there's some um i, I don't want to say too much but there's some there's there's a really crazy stallone story coming in the second volume Excellent. that is one of those ones it's just like somebody had mentioned that like i don't i can't wrap my head around this so i had to go and find somebody else who could confirm it just because it was insane um just a, a piece of casting it was a it was a yeah. film that stone almost started in for canon that nobody nobody would ever guess <laughs> don't spoil it that's a teaser there you go okay. ladies and gentlemen it's a teaser because <laughs> volume two is coming and I, I you know i'm gonna highly recommend we, we you know you go buy these books um because yeah they did it, it, you know going through like they you, know, you mentioned about the um, uh was it uh, michael dudikoff being under contract one of the things they seem to act in that old studio manner as well like they had like a regular cast you know like there, there were people that clearly went to like there was kind of like, you know chuck norris and Charles Bronson being the two that I can, you know, I think of. Um, they really did have like just a rotating cast of like, right, we've got this this film idea, <laughs> you know, whose whose name is going to go at the top of it? Right. Tell it, and so you know, I'm assuming sort of like you know, for, for my part, I could be wrong, but like, Canon basically gave Chuck Norris and Charles Bronson a career in the eighties. With his assessment, I mean, and with the other sort of, that's very fair. That's very fair. Um, had 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 he not found a happy home at Cannon, I Charles Bronson probably would have continued with these international productions that he was mm -hmm. doing before that. But Cannon allowed him to make the movies at his pace that he wanted, um, with usually with the directors that he handpicked. Um, mm -hmm. You have Michael Winner and Jay Lee Thompson, guys who are these old school types that he had known for decades. And they also paid him what he had asked for. He he always would, he would name his price, and that would be what he would get on that picture, pretty much. 
And it was a it was a win win situation for both mm. of them because Charles Bronson at that point he was older, his wife was sick, he had he had children, you know he had a, he had a horse farm in Vermont and yeah. the, the 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 Hollywood house, and he mostly just wanted to be with his family. So if he could support that lifestyle by making, you know, these sort of carbon copy, cheap <laughs> Canon <laughs> pictures each year where he was most of the budget or a significant portion of the budget that he would keep so i think he both their really his relationship with canon i think was very very good on for both sides beneficial kind of arrangement yes and and chuck norris was the it was the same way that they chuck norris was a rising sort of name but when he got to canon he was still in his 40s you know former he owned karate studios and things like that and he hadn't really had a movie that had made him a box office star. He had been in a lot of stuff, but it was usually these small productions that Chuck Norris's name was enough to mm. help them get it get it made. But with Missing in Action, he was a, he became a star in his forties, which <laughs> is fantastic. And they made a lot of movies with him. And it was another case where a lot of the ideas would come from Chuck's side. He was, he had a good friend, James Bruner, who was a screenwriter on a lot of these films. And his brother, Aaron, got to direct a lot of his later yes. canon movies. Um, they, that, yeah. they cast his son in two films. So <laughs> you get a lot of family stuff. Wow, the nepotism in uh, in canon was strong. Well, that's, that's how you get along in Hollywood. I mean, it's really like, for, you know, there's all these jokes about, you know, sort of like, you know, uh, about Chuck Norris. Like, you know, when he does press-ups, he's not pushing himself up, he's pushing the world away. Um, you know, that reputation of just being as tough as nails and all that comes from his canon era more than yeah. than anything else before. I mean, you know, he'd obviously done, like you say, uh, martial arts films and stuff, and Bruce Lee's the one that brought him in, so he has a great legacy and reputation. But it's really that, like, Missing in Action, Invasion USA, and, and Delta Force, and all those that really c- cemented him as the action <laughs> superstar, really, that, uh, you know, that then means he becomes a sort of a, a joke, not a joke, almost like an in-joke or, you know, almost like an Easter egg in Expendables 2. So it's, it's right. um, I, I love that. That's, it's fantastic to know more so that they were mutually beneficial, this idea of, like, you know, they got out of it what they wanted. And, and you know, Chuck Norris got a legacy out of it that, yeah. that is fantastic. Um, but it's not just the, the aging stars, was it? They, they clearly had an eye for, or at least wanted to take a risk on young up-and-comers um, and right. like, sticking around in the action sort of genre like you know they were the first sort of the first to pick up on like Jean-Claude Van Damme and right. really extend like Dolph Lundgren and, and those sorts of people so yeah that is that is true they um a lot of people got their starts in in canon films and Van Damme is a great example Van Damme is someone who had sort of been hanging around <laughs> the canon uh, their headquarters for a long time, trying to get work there. He was very famously an extra in Breakin. You can see him dancing in the back and the in the street, and um, get a very small like you almost can't see him. Part of missing in action, um, but he he just stuck around a lot, and finally, yeah, after a while, Menachem Golan just gave up. <laughs> the way the way he tells it it's just he's sort of this guy who keeps coming and coming and pitching himself want to be the star he doesn't speak great english 
but he can do all these cool kicks and splits. Um, I, I have a very short interview. I, I hope to talk to Van Damme more, um, but I, I talked to him years ago at a junket for his Jean-Claude Van Johnson. And, uh, yes. yeah. and then I was like, can you, so I got, I got his story directly about his meeting with Galan. Cause that's another one that you, there's many different versions of it mm. that people tell like that he was a waiter holding the bowls of soup and kicked over his head. And that, that wasn't the case. That was Galan's version. That was much more, much, much funnier, but yeah. But yeah, his basically it wound up with Galan finally being like, come on, you can come have a meeting here and going into his office and taking off his shirt, doing splits, doing kicks and everything. And then Galan finally going, okay, fine. Throw on the blood sports script was a, which was a script that Galan had had for a while and just did not like. And <laughs> it was kind of like, it gets, it gets this Van Damme guy off my back and it gets the producers and direct, mm. they were trying to get this blood sports script made off my back. He was kind of killing two birds with one stone and it wound up being a huge hit for them. But yeah, there was, after it sat on the shelf for a couple of years, actually, <laughs> because they, they shot it and it needed to be re-edited before they could release it. Dolph Lundgren's another, yeah, you mentioned another great example. He had done um, the Bond film and uh, the Rocky film, mm. both of those, but he had done, you know, it, he speaks very few lines in both those films and they're usually short things like, I will break you and <laughs> not, nothing that requires lots and lots of dialogue. And Canon put him in Masters, Universe, Masters of the Universe, and that was his first big leading mm -hmm. role. And I think part of the reason why he's, he doesn't talk about it as much, because I think he's a little self-conscious, because he, he became much better with his English and much better actor as his career went on really fast. But in that film, it was, he went from taking acting classes at night and having four you know, four, four word sentences, speaking four word sentences in Rocky to having to talk about the history of Eternia. And <laughs> another film I love though, that, that film is amazing. I know it gets panned and stuff, but it's another one that I'm just sort of, uh, and that's another one that like, you know, well, I'm sure you get to, and I don't want to spoil anything for your future book, but like another film that's got some like crazy sort of stories behind it. Like they got Frank Langella to play uh, Skeletor, like his, yeah. his daughter, his niece or some of that sort of talk was some, someone talked him into it. Mm. And you know, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's such a good film, but um, I, I, I do say, I just find that this whole studio, this whole thing of them just taking chances and just doing this thing, it's sort of, you know, it, it, it rolls around like every couple of days, like you get these studios, like in the sixties, you had AIP that you had Roger Corman and they did sort of like things with Vincent Price and all these other things. And then you get Canon in the eighties and then you get these smaller studios. I'm always like a, a a sucker for them where i'm like oh, come on mm. i want to see your films because you, you seem to do more balls to the wall than like mental stuff mm. um yeah but that's two careers that they started like you know when yeah. we're big in the in the 90s i mean you know universal soldier you got the pair of them sort of facing off <laughs> in a great action film so yeah. um part of part of the reason too i, I going jumping on, on top of what you said as far as balls to the wall something I think Canon was really good at is all of the money they spent. It wasn't as much as these bigger studios, mm. but that money outside of Charles Bronson and a few big stars, Stallone, that was going to what you saw on screen. They, mm. 
you know, if they had a lot of money, they were going to spend it on explosions because that's going to make it look better. They're not, it, it didn't, they don't have all the other bills and things that so many other companies would, studios would spend that, have to spend mm. lots and lots of cash on. So they, they, they were good about throwing as much of their budgets as they could at the screen. Oh, and it shows. I mean, you know, like you say, um, you watch those sort of, again, sort of Invasion USA is one of my favorite sort of canon mm. films. I think it's great. And it's, again, just nonsensical, crazy stuff, like, you know, um, shooting Uzis from the hip and, and, you know, rocket launchers and all kinds of crazy things. So it's like, no, but that's what 80s action films were, like, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that, that's, I'm, I'm just sort of working through some of the questions now. I, I, uh, sure. I could go off talking about all, all the different films, but really to, to sum up, then, let's sort of uh, bring it around, because um, Canon Films, as, as, a, as a sort of studio, if you were to do um, your top sort of four or five films, if you were to get, tell people like, now these are the films you've got to check out, like, you know, really go and if you want to understand what they were about, who, what, what, where would you point people? What sort of films would you point people to? It doesn't have to be action, but across the board, what sort of films would you go, yeah, these are the best representation of canon uh, in that period? Well, I think Invasion USA, if I were to mm. choose a Chuck Norris film, that one has sort of, the most the most pure action as far as what it is and the like the prototypical uh chuck norris character <laughs> and you know villains who are blowing up you know little towns they're selling like hanging christmas decorations like it's got a, the quintessential chuck norris hero and like the over-the-top nasty villain mm. um so if i were to choose a chuck norris movie it would be that one with Charles Bronson, it's a little trickier. Um, Death Wish 3 is probably the wildest one. Mm. I prefer Death Wish 4 just because it doesn't have a lot of the, the graphic sexual content that the Michael Winner movies do. And um, But yeah, Death Wish 3 or 4, if I were to recommend, uh, recommend a Charles Bronson one, either... Either one of those, depending on what your what your stomach is for that uh, sort of content. Yeah. Oh, gosh, we have to do a ninja movie. I'm actually gonna do two ninja movies because <laughs> there's two periods of ninja films. American Ninja is where uh, where Michael Dudikoff entered the fold with Canon. Um, it's the third ninja film that Sam Furstenberg made for Canon. And it's really this great sort of, they made, they ended up making five American Ninja movies Mm. and repeating a lot of the same plot points in each one. But that one is really the best. And you have, it pairs uh, Michael Dudikoff with Steve James, who was a amazing action actor, black actor who got very few leading roles in his career. He played sidekick in a lot of films, a lot of Canon films. But his chemistry with Steve James is one of my favorite sort of action duos, um, one of the great ones of the 80s. And then earlier than that, you look at uh, Revenge of the Ninja. The, the original Ninja series is a lot of fun, with mm-hmm. the original series with uh, Shokasugi being the only really link. The movies are unassociated plot-wise, but Shokasugi is in them as a different character in each one. Right. And those are the movies that really kind of kicked off the ninja craze in the in the United States. I know in the UK that ninjas were banned from 
part of it, something to do with the nunchucks. Um, yeah, apparently we can't be trusted with things. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. Yeah, but so, but Revenge of the Ninja is Sam Furstenberg's uh, first film for canon. And he's one of their main directors, but it's one of these movies that it hits this sweet spot between being a amazing action film. There's great stunts. There's so many stunts where people are clearly almost getting hurt on screen and talking to these people who were in that, they, you know, they were, things were happening to them, but it was kind of like almost one of those Jackie Chan things where you're like, mm. okay, this stunt couldn't be done without somebody getting hurt. But it's some amazing, incredible stunt work. Um, but it, it's also on the same side, it's got a lot of the canon silliness. You've got crazy fights on like a playground, a children's playground where, you know, ninjas are throwing ninja stars, like Shokasu's throwing ninja stars around a playground. He's throw people are getting thrown down sliding boards. They're dressed like the old disco band, the uh, disco act, the village people. Like one's, <laughs> one's a cowboy, one's a Native American. There's um, crazy, it's just one of these movies that, it, if I, people, people ask, what's your favorite canon movie? And that's one that if I, if somebody would force me to choose one, I would mm. always, because it's also a nostalgic favorite. Um, just real quick, break in. Yeah. Break into Electro Boogaloo, even more wild. The Apple is a great one over the top. You said four. I'm, I'm, no, I think I'm it. probably no, I'm like, yeah. yeah. I, think, I think this is the thing, though, like you say, it's, it's a, you scratch at the surface. There's probably an entry point. And mm -hmm. it may be like, you know, um, we haven't even talked about Superman 4, you know, how, mm -hmm. and I might sort of just touch on that in a moment, but like, it seems like, you know, that you have an entry point with Canon and you go, oh, this is, this is crazy. Where'd this come from? And then you sort of like, you'll link it to another and then another and then another. And all of a sudden you're down this rabbit hole of <laughs> these films and they gradually get crazier and crazier. Um, and again, I think that's just one of the appealing things about this studio. The fact that there is so much that you can just explore yeah. and each time you go really they did that fantastic i mean let's just touch on superman 4 i mean um it's one of those I, I love all the superman films um and superman 4 just as much you know it clearly doesn't have the budget and reeves clearly isn't into the same shape he has been previously <laughs> quite possibly doesn't want to be there <laughs> mm -hmm. yet it still has a charm and a, a sort of, uh, you know, something about it that I kind of like. But yeah, that's another one that's, you know, so, I mean, how did they get hold of that? Well, that, there was a period in the, after Superman 3, where Reeve said he didn't want to do it. He said he would never be play Superman again. Mm. And the producers had, Superman 3 had done, I mean, it made better money than any canon movie would but it made significantly less than did they saw diminishing returns mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they looked and like okay if we're gonna spend 30 to 40 million making at, at the very least making it we we can't be guaranteed that we're gonna make that back so it's probably not worth making another one especially with reeve not wanting to do it so they just they didn't want the rights anymore they they thought the series was done and so canon ran in and made him an offer and bought the rights to Superman, uh, to the Superman franchise. And then Reeve, who famously is not putting on the cape again, ever, um, he was going to do a cameo in Supergirl when he ended mm -hmm. up dropping out of that. 
um, for this same reason. He didn't want to play Superman anymore. But he was having a hard time finding a post-Superman career. Most of his most of his performances were either in movies that weren't very good or movies that no one went to see. And he was looking at actors like he was very famous. So you can you can you can listen to interviews with him at the time. You can he mentions Harrison Ford a lot. And mm-hmm. it's almost like one of these ones where he, you, you can tell he's sort of like looking at him and very jealous of, because he, he had Star Wars and Ian and Jones, these big pulpy franchise tentpole movies. Mm. And, but Harrison Ford had done um, Witness. And after that, people also looked at him as a serious actor. That he, could, he could be in these other films while he was also doing these. And Christopher Reeve was thinking, I just need that one role that... Well, people will see it and take me seriously as someone be that not just Superman. And so he had this pet project that he was pushing for years and years called Street Smart, um, about a corrupt, corrupt uh, newspaper or magazine journalist, and very much almost like his Clark Kent character, but as different as he could because he's a guy who makes up a story and it ends up coming to haunt him, coming back to haunt him very quickly, and. Nobody would make it. And of course, mm. Canon was in the business of making movies that nobody else wanted to make. So they went to Reeve and they made him really two offers. They said, we want you to make Superman 4 for us. We know you don't want to do it, but we have the rights. We will do Street Smart for you. And we will let you bring us the premise, the idea that what whatever Superman 4 is going to be about. And Reeve was also excited by that because he wanted to get into also working behind the camera. So he, he was the one who brought to them the idea of the missiles gathering, being gathered up and Superman stopping the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so streets, they can have made Street Smart before they made Superman, Superman 4, which is actually a great movie. If, if you haven't had the chance to see it, or if anybody has it, check it out because it's, uh, it's the movie that put... Uh, Gosh, why am I, why am I blanking, uh, blanking on his name? This is embarrassing. Morgan Freeman. How is that someone I would just forget the name of? Like, like, like cooking my head. Morgan Freeman plays a pimp in that. He got his first Academy Award nomination. He's 50 years old, but that was before that he'd done children's television in the U.S. and like it wasn't. Gave him his like another person his like kind of this second career. Mm. And he, he's fantastic. And he got an, yeah, an Academy Award nomination for a, a Canon film. But Canon at that point, 87, was a terrible, terrible year for them because they'd taken all the money that they had, all this goodwill, all these lines of credit that was supposed to go into making movies like Masters Universe and uh, Superman 4. And that's what they told their investors that they were going to mm-hmm. do with the money. And they used that to buy Thorny MI and all the, the, the gigantic theater chain out in the UK and Elstree Studios mm. were all part of this purchase. And so a few months later, they're making their movies and they've blown hundreds of millions of dollars on credits on stuff they weren't supposed to spend it on. And so they didn't even have money to really send prints of Street Smart out there. So Reeve is getting ready to make Superman 4 and he's like, yeah, you can't even put my other movie into theaters. How are you going to pay for a Superman movie? And that's when the budget gets cut in half and they start yanking pages of the script out. That's where they walk over to the Masters Universe set and turn off the lights. That's where you have Texas Chainsaw Massacre where they're worried they're spending too much money on uh, water 
So they like <laughs> stop supplying water to a, a movie that Toby Hooper is shooting in Texas in the middle of summer. It's just some, some cra- 86, 87, they had so many financial problems and it was just because they'd blown all their credit on. <laughs> that was the biggest thing. And <laughs> Which, which uh, Texas Chainsaw one was it? Um, Chainsaw 2 was. 2 was canon. Oh, well, I've, got, I've, yeah. got, I've got that. Um, what the arrow version. Wow, I didn't, I didn't realize that. I never looked at the back. Um, yeah, so naughty boys going off and spending yeah. their money elsewhere. <laughs> But yeah, that's why that's why Superman Four though the problems that it has are purely they had written this movie with twice the budget in mind, mm-hmm. and a lot of the guys that they had they had most of the people most of the team lined up from the prior Superman films to do all the same effects. Who all saw it and were like, "I can't do this for what you're giving me," and they walked. And that's why you have people coming in with. I mean. One of the funniest things, I mean, the green screen is so bad, but also you can like see the harness that Christopher yeah. Reeve is wearing. It looks like he's wearing a diaper in some of the flying scenes. Yeah, it was, I say, or a girdle. I know it's, it comes up quite high and it sort of, it looks, mm-hmm. it must have been really uncomfortable. Um, it makes you wonder though, and this is one of those things again, you know, just sort of those moments in history. If they had not done that investment and had, had the money to do those things, um, and you know it's a what if, and, and you may, you may cover it in one of your later books. But it's that what if moment of it. If they hadn't done that, would that have led to more success? I mean, you know, Superman could have brought in more money. You had Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which has got an IP that's recognisable. You've got He Man. You've got these other things, un- unmade things, which I'm, I can't wait to find out about. Yeah, could it could it have been a different story? I think they could have survived a lot longer than they did for sure there's there there are so many things they did wrong and on top of that just also fudging paperwork and things like that to investors and stuff stuff that they got in trouble so provided they had not made that investment they hadn't wound up going to if they hadn't like still stayed out of jail Mm. um yeah they would have survived i think longer because they could have put that money they could have made superman 4 that actually had a budget and had the original team working on it they could have finished up Masters, Masters of the Universe in the way that they had meant to do it. Um, yeah. When you say in the way they meant, and I don't want to spoil it for the for the future book, because there is one of the things I, I, I actually did uh, for the podcast, I, we did a commentary of Masters of the Universe. Oh, that's fun. And we sat there, and one of the things that we, we noticed is like, this is like the least populated town in America. Like, there's, there's two cops. There's, there's, the, there's the bald guy from Back to the Future and two of the policemen. But when Skeletor comes through with his army, you know, and all these sort of things, like, no one else around. <laughs> it's like, and mm. I get it shot at night, but, like, there's nothing, and it's hilarious. But you sort of get that feeling, like, you get, okay, well, extras is, is probably one of the first things that they could they could probably dump off the budget. Like, we ain't going to pay these people. No one's going to notice, you know. Um but I, I, again, I wonder what if, like if they've had that money, if they'd have had the sort of, you know, the resources to carry on, would it have been a different story? There would have been more to the the final battle for sure. The, <laughs> one, one of the things that happened, Masters went over, it went way over its schedule mm. and it's canon was really, I mean, they wanted the movie to be finished, but they're also, they don't have the money to keep paying people, paying people. So they got to the end and they shot basically the battle, the final battle between Skeletor and He-Man. They, the last day, they, they shot up to the point where they were, they swing their swords 
Mm. And then they, sh- Cannon shuts off the lights. They shut off the power and tell everyone to come home. And they're like, this got it. We got it, guys. This is it. So the movie would have ended with no battle between Skeletor and He-Man. They would have, collided, their, their swords would have collided. There would have been sparks. And then the credits would have rolled. It would have been the most anticlimactic ending. Wow. And so, because, so yeah, so that, because of that, uh, Gary Goddard went to Cannon, begged and begged and begged and begged to give him just one more day, one more day. And they did. So he got back, he got to go back with the skeleton crew as Frank Langella, Dolph Lundgren, Anthony DeLongas, who um, played Blade mm-hmm, in the movie, mm-hmm. but was also the guy who did all the sword training and stuff. Yeah. And they shot the final battle, which if you're wondering why that, that, that it's so dimly lit all of a sudden, because in the movie, they like their swords collide and all the lights go out and it's just mm. them fighting with, like it almost looks like a you know music video or something. There's just some like fog and some lighting in the back. And that's because they didn't have a crew and they didn't have people to actually light the entire Eternia stage. Wow. So they got away with the tiny crew. So, they ended up getting that, and it, I, I think it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it was fine. But it was much more choreographed, much more stuff would have been going on had yeah. they had more days to, to wrap it up. Yet, and I love this, knowing all that, right, they had to do all that, and yet they still throw in a post credit scene of Skeletor coming back out of the water at the end. <laughs> that's some balls, that is. It like, is. Yeah, that's the Golden Globus in a nutshell, that is. Yeah, we've run out of money. Um, we didn't <laughs> want to do this, but we're still going to tease a sequel. Fair play. And they had their He-Man 2 ads in their catalogs for like, <laughs> right after that movie came out and flopped and the cartoon, like the toy line was ended and like the, the cartoon wasn't on the air anymore. Ken was still trying to, to, to make a He-Man 2 and they worked on it, you know. Famously, a lot of those, those sets and costumes went into Cyborg. Mm. But yeah, they they finally weren't able to make a He-Man 2 because their check to Mattel for the rights bounced. <laughs> so amazing. Uh, they, they, they lost those rights. That's amazing. Well, I think you know we will sort of we'll, we'll bring it to a bit of a close there because that's been amazing. And I don't want the thing is my, my temptation is to keep asking what about this film? What about this film? But I don't <laughs> want to spoil things for the future because Canon are an absolute. You know, it, it's it's a it's a catalogue of delights. And some of the stories that you're pulling out are fantastic. I mean, thank you. The the first book is wonderful. I haven't managed to read, read all of it yet. I've been going through it, and but the information in it is. It, I mean, this is almost like a definitive guide of these things. Like this is a, a, a three you. volumes is, is going to be incredible, and so, you know, it, it's, it's 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 a great piece of work. You know, you're doing God's work, as they say. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I'm loving this. So so just you know. Let's not spoil the future. When when are the next two books coming out? Well, I'm really doing everything I can to get the second book out by the end of this year. Mm-hmm. So, like I like we mentioned, we talked earlier. I was writing them. I was writing it sort of as a my 50 favorite canon movies mm. back when I started the project. So a lot of the chapters, or actually, this is the period of canon where, like you said, has a lot of the big ones. Mm. So a lot of these I had written first before I wrote a lot of the stuff that I came. Uh, came in the first book so I had a good head start when I went to work on the second volume so right now yeah it's it's being edited I'm trying to squeeze in chase down every last interview I possibly can some people who seemed tap in like chasing them like hey please please bag them if I need to um that sort of stuff because I'd love to include 
people I can. There's, there's also a section, there's going to be a section in the second book of people who I was able to, I heard back from after I'd already turned the first one into the publisher. So there's some big names that were notably absent from the first book, which will mm. kind of, there's going to be a little section at the end where it's like, He's you know, here. <laughs> yeah, here, here. Like, finally, I did get to talk to these people. And, you know, these are the things that people have asked me about these movies that I could in turn ask them. And then the third one is going to be a little longer because it is, um, I didn't have as much of that written before. <laughs> mm. um, so I, 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 I don't want to put a date on that because it's probably going to at least take me two years to. Um, That'd be fair, but, I mean, but, it, but it's coming, it, ladies and gentlemen. It's, yes. <laughs> and the first, the first volume, uh, you know, the Canon Film Guide, 1980 to 1984, is out. It's out there you know in in all good booksellers um primarily you know amazon we all know that um <clears throat> you can get it in uh, there's a hardback version i know that's kicking about but mm. there's a paperback version and there's in kindle so there's no excuse really for, <laughs> for not getting this book and there are paper, people that you know i know listen to this podcast and people are very sort of uh you know i, I get on very well with um a guy called max uh who's got it and was, was very excited about it and sort of you know he and i have spoken about it so um yeah I, I, it, it's a great piece of work it's it's uh you know more than anything right one of the things i would say is um it's it's in, it's inspiring in in many ways because one of the things is action movies everybody there's loads of stuff about horror movies i love horror movies i'm a big horror movie guy and i've got lots of books about them and you get the whole gamut of you know the sort of the full scholarly academic look you know that sort of thing of like you know how these reflect our society and that kind of thing i love all that stuff all the way through to this is a pop pulp history of the book you know that sort of thing so and i love all those action and these other things don't doesn't really get that attention mm. uh, and i think that canon hold a big part of that especially that introduction of the, the creation of the, of the the action film the birth of the action film for the 80s so to have this book as a, as a resource and stuff it's something that's been playing in my mind for years about the birth of the action film and this plays into it and just looking through this i'm like this is amazing <laughs> this is what i want this is so you have filled a hole in that way which is fantastic so oh, thank you so much no no it's, it, that's what i just want to say it's a great book and i'm, I'm highly recommending it i can't wait for the second one so uh anything else you want to plug though is there anything else have you got any other sort of creative outputs anything else you want to throw out there this is this is the focus of my <laughs> of, of my work right now um i still do occasional dvd reviews here and there online but uh freelancing but yeah no this is this is it this is where i'm i've dove in fully <laughs> fair play well done living the dream oh, thank you <laughs> living live the canon dream um but austin thank you very much for your time today thank you very much for talking canon film thank you for having me this has been so much fun that is great. And, you know, when the second book does come out, I'll probably be in contact. We'll come and we'll talk again about what you're doing Please. there and, and, and we'll, we'll talk some more. But uh, uh, where can people find you online to talk about the film and, and, and the book and, and everything? I'm uh, at Canon Film Guide on Twitter and then the same on Facebook. So I actually use both those places to really keep sharing extra stuff. I have thousands. I have a closet here next to me that is just full of big boxes actually the, the, my computer right now is stacked on some very precarious boxes of canon <laughs> stuff and the, I, all the photos and things that come in the book are from my collection and scans and photos and um yeah I, I i share i keep sharing that stuff and there are so many things i learn 
about the movies later on that since the book first book was published that details I can keep posting. So yeah, I, I kind of like to refer to that as like the bonus features of <laughs> the book. If uh, they, I, there's a lot of fun stuff to continue and sh I, I like to just keep sharing with Canon fans because there, there, there are a lot of them out there, a lot more out there than I, than I realized when I <laughs> was oh, yeah, first writing yeah. the book. And so, and it's been so exciting. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's great. And not only the Canon fans, one of the things I found is, is recent, relatively recently, is VH, obviously VHS is a big collectible. A lot of people are going to, Canon VHS, they're a big collectible. You know, they go for, they go for a bleeding bunch online. Yeah. Like, you know, lots and lots of moolah. So no, this is great. And I will, uh, you know, for those listening, check out the notes below in the podcast. Uh, I will be putting uh, links up to uh, to Austin's book and his social media, so you can go check him out and go say hello, and uh, you know let us know if you want to get in contact and talk to talk to myself or to Austin about any of these films about Canon films. Get in contact. You know, I think <laughs> you probably noticed we're both pretty happy talking about this stuff. Uh, and probably <laughs> want to do more. So uh, yeah, so Austin, thank you very much for spending time with us today. I really appreciate it. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, do get in contact and that we shall talk again soon. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Another great 20th Century Geek episode. Thank you for listening. If you would like to get in contact to suggest topics for future shows or just chat about everything nerdy, you can email me at 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com. That's 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com or find me on social media twitter facebook or instagram just search for 20th century geek if you would like to support the show please go on your podcast catcher and leave a five star review i would greatly appreciate it it raises the show in the ranks and lets more people know about the podcast if you want to show more support for the podcast, we do have an Amazon wish list. Just go on Amazon and search for 20th Century Geek and you will find a list of books that will help with research for future podcasts. And don't forget, we love secondhand books in 20th Century Towers. Once again, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.